Carnival pulled into town His harmonica the only sound To break the ride and A damp bell and a big top pan It's the only bed he's been laying for the night Early morning drizzled down Bring another curse and another frown Against the sky Waiting down the midway Turned out to be another day after all Blind man got the county fair blues again Blind man got the county fair blues Eternal moan on harmonica, six strings in his orchestra, rough vocals though. His voice had left him long a while, burned out by gin bottle smiles and rainy nights. But he's a slowly strolling minstrel show, doesn't charge no admission though, unless you've a mind to. Maybe drop a dime into his cup It'll bring you luck Like a wishing well Blind man got the county fair blues again Blind man got the county fair blues Blind man got the county fair blues again Blind man got the county fair blues now a bunch of kids accidentally knocks him down And he hears a sorry from the ground As he fumbles for his fallen money cup Here's another voice say, man, good luck, you're gonna need it Sideshow streets he's been playing for a week are empty now. He hears the carnies picking up, packing all their wares into the trucks and moving out. Then he feels a brisk October air rushing through another hollow county fair. It's another close, my friend. Cotton candy man offers him a ride And you hear his harmonica fade into the night Blind man got the county fair blues again Blind man got the county fair blues Blind man got the county fair blues again Blind man got the county fair blues
Welcome to this edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to Blind Man's County Fair Blues by a terrific singer-songwriter based out of the York, Pennsylvania area, Mr. Michael Arthur. He happens to be one of my very favorite singer-songwriters. I love the sound of his voice. I love the sound of the guitar and his guitar style, and I love the way he puts lyrics together. And he happens to be on the phone with me right now. Michael, welcome to the show. Todd, good to be with you today. Well, you know, I don't think I've seen you in person for, gosh, at least a year, maybe even longer. Yeah, probably the last time was, uh, well, I guess it was downtown there in Frederick uh, at the uh, one of the last... Uh, uh, shows that you were doing down there. Uh, what was the name of that place? Oh, at Brewer's Alley, probably. Brewer's Alley, yeah. Yep. Yep, it's been, gosh, it's been just about a year. Well, no, I take that back. We did, it, it's going to be coming up on a year from the last show there. Yeah. So, so what have you been doing um, during this whole virus thing? Well, it's kind of been interesting. Uh, my father is 98 years old. Oh, God and, love it. Uh, wow. And uh, I'd been taking him out every day for a couple of years ever since we convinced him to give up the car. He was driving until he was 94. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then it became pretty obvious that he couldn't live alone anymore. He, he started to ha- uh, fall every now and then. And, um, you know, he wasn't really uh, taking care of himself the way he should. And, uh, so anyway, to make a long story short, I, uh, uh, my wife and I agreed that the best course of action would be to, for me to move in with him. He mm-hmm. lives about two, two miles from us, but his place was really ideal for him. And, uh, so I moved in in December, uh, first week of December and, uh, and we were having visiting angels come in to give me a break and I could go out and do some gigs and, you know, whatever. Uh, and then the pandemic hit in March. And so it's just been me and him uh, pretty much the whole time. I get a break every now and then when my son comes over and sits with them and I can go and go back home for a little bit. But uh, pretty much uh, I've been living here with him, taking care of him and in, in pretty much isolation. Of course, all the gigs were were canceled. <laughs> and That's uh, so true. That- that wasn't uh, an issue anymore, but uh, I picked up the slack uh, with a lot of online stuff. I did uh, a um, about a, a forty-minute one for the Susquehanna Folk Music Society, uh, and just finished uh, the virtual Capona Festival uh, from City of Harrisburg, which is normally a big outdoor event every year. But we did the music virtually this year. So uh been keen busy with that, and I found a few really great um, open mics uh, online with some friends uh, all over the country, really. And uh, so it gives me something to uh, change out of my pajamas and take a shower for every week. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you find it difficult playing to a camera? Or yeah, it's, cer- yeah. it's certainly... Uh, not the same as having that feedback from a live audience in, in all its forms. And uh, so it does take some uh, some discipline and, and different ways of thinking about it. Um, 
So uh, on, on some of the things I do, it's uh, it gives you a second shot at it if you screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's kind of nice. But yeah, it, it I very much miss, um, you know, having the interaction with the live audience. But, uh, you know, thank God we have the technology. So at least in this dire situation, really, during the pandemic, uh, we are able to still connect somehow, and, and that's that's a great thing. It is. Now, how do you record? Do you use an iPhone? Um, do you use the camera and, and microphone on your computer? How do you do it? Well, uh, a few months ago, uh, I decided to invest in some new recording uh, equipment. Uh, I'd been using a very old, old, old uh Macintosh with uh, one of the original Pro Tools light uh, programs, and uh, but it was so long in the tooth that nothing was supported anymore. Uh, the interface, <laughs> the computer, the operating system, nothing. So I decided to, to bite the bullet and uh, I got a, a, a nice universal audio uh, interface and a, and a new Mac computer and uh, been exploring that the last couple months and uh it's pretty amazing uh so i've been using that as kind of the interface to uh for even the the open mics and um and i also have a um a very interesting program a friend turned me on to called dolby on which is a uh an app for uh iphone or ipad but really iphone is the most integrated and uh, it's absolutely an amazing uh, application. Uh, you can take the mic really just right off the iPhone, and um, this app uh, processes it and makes it sound like a million bucks. It's it's just stunning. Wow. So I've been using that, and I'm using that now in combination with my Universal Audio uh, application. So I'm able to get, you know, reverbs and compressors into the mix and then adjust it through there. But uh, pretty amazing application just on its own. So you like the song we just listened to, Blind Man's County Fair Blues, that was recorded by you? Yeah, that was recorded. Uh, that was actually recorded on my old uh, system. Uh, and that was an entry in a... Uh, in a song contest, I believe I used that, that for, but yeah, that was me. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I think I did one overdub for the harmonica on that one. And, um, and then, you know, add a little reverb compression with a little sweetener in there, but, uh, nothing really like I have the ability to do now once I start to really do this, but I'm recording out of an old, out of an old, uh, actually it's not old, but, uh, there was a storage closet in my dad's upstairs bedroom here in his condo. So I cleared that out and I got a little setup in there right now. Now, did you put like soundproofing on the walls or anything like that? A little bit. Uh, there, there's not much you can do. I mean, it's pretty quiet in there, but not ideal. It's not a recording studio. So, uh, I'll be limited to what I can really accomplish there, but, uh, Hey, it's better than nothing. Well, I mean, the, the songs that I have heard on your website, and for those people listening, if they want to tune in to uh, Michael and find him online, it's michaelarthur.com. I happen to be looking at the homepage right at, as we speak, but the four songs that are, well, you've got Blind Man's County Fair Blues on the 
homepage, and then you have a, a page of your songs, it says my songs, and you've got yeah. four on those. Were those all recorded with your old system or any of those with the new setup? I think all of those are with the old uh, Pro Tools setup. Uh, and um, yeah, I haven't really put any music alone up from this new system yet. Uh, I've been using it primarily to, to for the sound in videos. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, at this point, I think videos are more important than simply recorded music. Uh, uh, I think, uh, and I find myself doing this. If there's an opportunity for me to see uh, a performance of the song on YouTube, I'd rather do that than just listen to an album cut. Uh, I just really like that whole experience. And I think a lot of people share that. And especially during the pandemic when we're just dying for actual interaction, uh, I think the video has uh, been very important. So I've been concentrating more on that for now. But uh, eventually I will have, uh, you know, however we're going to do it, a CD or, you know, as, as they become virtually obsolete. But fortunately, my audience is older and uh, some of them still have players. So that's still a viable option. So I'll be putting together that uh hopefully uh sometime in in 2021 we'll have something coming out uh in a cd format or you know spotify or whatever so well hopefully in 2021 and hopefully in the springtime things will start to open up and we can get the numbers of the viruses down to the point where we can actually do things back to a somewhat normal way that's my yeah hope. that that's the hope for sure that's the best. Nothing beats the live audience no, for, what, for this kind of music. Even if it's one person. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Well, going back to Blind Man's County Fear of Blues, and we chatted before we actually started the show, and I did mention it in my introduction, but you are one of my favorite lyricists of all my singer-songwriter friends and people I've heard over the years. And just from that song, there's two two lines in there or two groups of lyrics that just I love is gin bottle smiles and drop a dime into his cup. It'll bring you luck. <laughs> now, yeah. how do you come up with lines like that? Is it something where it just pops into your head or do you sit and, and labor over it? Well, I labor over it a lot. And, um, it, I, my writing process uh, can be a very long process. And, and sometimes the song appears to be done for years and I'm performing it. Uh, and Blind Man's County Blues is actually one of those. And uh, on this version that we heard today is actually uh, quite a bit different. Well, I shouldn't say quite a bit, but uh, it definitely has a different uh, break and... Um, and, and the chorus is slightly different uh, than it was originally written and performed for many, many years. So sometimes uh, a revelation occurs later, you know, and, and my uh, approach to lyrics and the song itself is that the more succinct it can be and the more you, and the more you can convey in as few words as possible is probably the what I'm shooting for most of the time. 
And, so you're uh, a good editor of your own material. Yeah. Sometimes it gets whittled down uh, quite a bit and sometimes not right away. Sometimes after you're performing it for a while and you're getting and seeing the feedback from the audience uh, will kind of lead me in a direction to uh, to edit it further. Um, because you want to get that point across, uh, uh, I think, uh, as succinctly as possible. Uh, we're dealing with a culture that has a short attention span for sure. Um, so I, I don't want to labor uh, losing their listening. <laughs> now, how, so, do you, how do you go about coming up with, what's your process for coming up with an idea for a song? Uh, it's always the music first for me. Okay. Uh, uh, there may be an idea lyrically, but before the lyric is actually written, uh, I, I'm going to some kind of guitar riff, uh, uh, or something I'm playing around with musically that triggers, uh, an emotion for me, instrumental music, uh, can trigger an emotion, and that emotion will lead me to a thought, which uh, hopefully will end up being a lyric or an idea for a lyric or an idea for the song. And uh, and it just kind of grows from there, kind of like a, a, a crystal would grow uh, over time. And so uh, I've not really had the experience very often or maybe ever where you have that bolt of lightning and the whole song comes out that some writers talk about, but even the ones that that happens to, you know, uh, I remember having a conversation with David Wilcox and he was describing an experience that he had, uh, where a song just as, as fast as he could write it down, uh, came out. But he says, you know, that, that you can't rely on that. You got to go to work every day. (laughs) If you're going to be a songwriter. So, uh, that's kind of been, uh, my approach and, and painfully so sometimes where it takes years, you know, where I have, a, I'll have a, a riff or a musical idea floating around for years. And one day, uh, something maybe I'm experiencing in life or observing connects with, with that musical, uh, idea. And then the song starts to develop lyrically. Now, do you find that the song that you start when you finish it, it's a completely different subject or a completely different look at that subject, or, or does it pretty much follow suit all the way through? Uh, for me, it changes uh, a lot a lot of times, and sometimes completely. Uh, there's, there's a song that uh, I've written uh, that uh, I started out intentionally to write a love song and um the song ended up being in the end uh a song about an alzheimer's patient from the alzheimer's patient's point of view so that was a pretty dramatic change but in the end as i analyzed it it really was still kind of a love song just one that's really quite different than you would expect Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it often changes. Um, and uh, so that, that's part of the process, which I think makes songwriting very interesting for me. Now, do 
in many of your songs or maybe all of your songs or none of your songs, is it personal experience that helps you the most or is it just imagination thinking, gosh, I wonder how this person would describe this situation? Yeah, a lot of times it's from a personal experience, uh, but maybe not one that I've actually had, which is uh, a weird thing to say, I guess. But uh, sometimes you'll see a uh, or a situation uh, or hear a story from a friend or however that comes into your life uh, that's outside of your personal experience. But what I find happening is I put I immediately put myself in that situation and think about how I would have handled that or what I would have done or what my reaction would have been. And then the song kind of develops from that. So it's not uh, actual personal experience, but it's me empathizing or actually a little more than that. I'm actually putting myself in, in, the, in that character's situation and, and then the emotions arise in me from that, but it, it isn't actually a personal uh, experience that happened, which is like, it's kind of interesting. Well, in, in your about, on your about page, one of the words that jumps out and it was used by Ron Goad one time, who was either introducing you at Bruce Alley, this is years ago, or after you had performed a song and he used the word poignant. Yeah. And that's in the first, on your about page, it's in the first sentence. And it says, <laughs> Michael Arthur's poignant songs. But I do find that your lyrics, they come across when you listen to them as just very, they just slide right along. And you have a wonderful way of, of your timing and your sometimes pulling out the word and letting the word uh, draw out um, to finish the, the whatever you want to call it. But your lyrics, to me anyway, and this is the way I hear them, is they're very deep, but not necessarily on the surface. They're very easy to listen to, but, you know, it'll hit me in the ears, and then all of a sudden, it's like when someone tells you a joke and you don't get it for a second or two. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, I I think uh, what I'm shooting for and what I'm interested in doing is tapping into uh, some universal human themes and uh, in an emotional way. Um, and the, the danger in, for me it, to try to write songs like that is to get too big. And uh, I think the key for it is to uh, have things that are more focused that people can relate to that lead to those emotional uh, aspects of the song and those themes. So, you know, if you write a song that is full of very broad words and topics, uh, to me, it sometimes becomes uh, too preachy. And whenever people feel they're being preached to, I think they kind of shut down a little bit to the message. Mm -hmm. So uh, my approach is to, I'll be thinking about that big theme maybe uh, right in the beginning, but I'm, I'm going to try to find uh, 
things in everyday life that can kind of build uh, into that. And, and like you said, uh, it, you're listening to it and it, it's easy to listen to because you're not being preached to, you don't feel. And uh, But the theme comes through in, in some kind of story fashion, uh, some kind of uh, recanting of, of, of an everyday experience that, that a lot of people can put themselves into that situation. Uh, and that that's that's what I try to do. Not always successfully. <laughs> and sometimes it takes a lot of tweaking to, to get there. That's all right. If the finished product is is usually as good as the songs I hear you sing, you're very successful at it. Oh, thanks. Now, were you always a guitar player singer? I mean, what's your musical journey like from the time you were a kid? Did you grow up in a musical family? How how did things progress? Uh, my family was not musical at all. Uh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, we we had, I, I grew up with, uh, you know, my immediate family, brothers and sisters, parents. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather, maternal side, lived with us, as did my great-grandfather and my uncle for a while. So we had a big household. Nobody was musical. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I like a lot of uh, people in my generation um, kind of got opened up to the whole thing with the Beatles uh, on the Ed Sullivan show but actually it was even before that for me I happened to be up late as a young kid and I don't know if you remember the Jack Parr show oh, of course yes uh, uh, Jack Parr was actually the first television show in the United States to show the Beatles. He had, he had film from them uh, at a concert in Liverpool or somewhere in Britain that he put up as a novelty to just observe these screaming girls in this new musical phenomenon. And that was the first time I saw him and I was immediately impressed. (laughs) (laughs) And then later on, of course, the legendary night on the Ed Sullivan show and, and then the British invasion that followed that, that was my whole, uh, initial, you know, uh, draw to music. And, um, so as I, uh, and we formed little garage bands and didn't really know how to play and took a few terrible guitar lessons with people that weren't interested in really teaching, you know, those kind of uh, yes. things. So basically self-taught and, uh, we had a, I had, I had a group with a uh, someone in my small town, Windsor, Pennsylvania, which is like 800 people, who was on the same wavelength, all this stuff. And he already had a guitar. I didn't yet. So I picked up a bass because we needed a bass in the group. And uh, so we did that for a while. And then as I got into high school, where we were living here, uh, the whole soul music thing became very big. The Motown, the Memphis Soul stacks all that stuff and i was still a bass player and actually the bass player in that situation was a very cool thing to be and uh so uh, i played a lot of my bands in high school were were soul bands and uh with horns and front uh singers and the whole bit so uh that's that's how i cut my teeth and on on really getting into music and playing live. And, um, when I got into college, uh, 
then my attention got drawn to the whole folk music scene. And uh, I was arriving maybe a little late to it, uh, but not too late. And because uh, I had always enjoyed, you know, the birds and what I'd heard from Bob Dylan and Neil Young and people like that. And then the whole Crosby, Stills and Nash thing when that hit. And so I was immediately drawn to all that stuff and and got an acoustic guitar and uh, and started to uh, really get involved in that. And then started to, uh, you know, get enough courage to play live as a solo acoustic uh, uh, singer songwriter kind of thing. Even though I wasn't really writing songs too much back then. Now, had you been singing the whole time or were you mostly no. just a background bass player? No, when I was in the soul band, uh, I didn't sing at all. Uh, we had uh, uh, three uh, African-American, black, I don't know what the politically correct term is now, uh, front men who, who did all the singing harmony and they were fantastic. Um, and then my role was, you know, I was a bass player wearing a matching suit uh, doing kind of dance steps as I was playing. <laughs> that was my <laughs> whole bit. And uh, so, yeah, I, I didn't really get into the singing uh, until, you know, the acoustic guitar and, you know, trying to do some cover songs of some favorite artists uh, back then. That's how I got involved with it. Now, do you remember what that first guitar was? Well, the first real guitar I had uh, was a Yamaha FG-180. Mm-hmm. Same guitar that uh, uh, Country Joe yep. was handed at Woodstock to walk out on stage. And and, uh, and then a little later on, not a few years later, uh, my grandfather uh, chipped in and, uh, and we bought a... Uh, Martin D28, which I still have. Don't have the Yamaha anymore, which I wish I did. Uh, you know, I had a bunch of cheap guitars, of course, when I first started out. And then my first real instrument uh, was a, a Fender Precision Bass, mm-hmm. uh, which I played in the soul bands. Now, do you still yeah. own that one? or I wish I did, but yeah. I, that, that one went too. <laughs> so... Uh, but I do have a P bass now that I have around that my son actually just recently uh, sent to me. Uh, so hopefully it will be used on some rec- upcoming recordings. Now, was it difficult for you to transition from bass to guitar? Uh, not really, because I'd start out on guitar and, and knew a few chords, you know, knew, knew a few cowboy chords on guitar. And... Uh, could always, you know, kind of pick up a guitar and play those. Uh, so it really wasn't much of a transition. I probably played bass more like a guitar player than than a bass player playing guitar. Uh, so that wasn't too big of a transition. Uh, and actually, it helped me a lot. And in later years, I found out that playing bass really influenced my guitar style when I started to play in open tunings because uh, the open tunings allowed me to kind of keep a bass line uh, going and add kind of a, a chordal thing and maybe a lead thing over top of that at the same time. But the, 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 the bass playing uh, 
uh, part of that style uh, really came from what I had done uh, back playing a, an actual bass guitar in the soul bands. So well, you are somewhat known, when I say somewhat known, just come from my own personal opinion, but or perspective is a fingerstyle player for the most part. Well, I I did that for a while, and uh, I got really into fingerstyle playing uh, in college, and uh, I had I played with a thumb pick and uh, some metal finger picks back then, and uh, did a lot of that. Always did some flat picking though too. Uh, and then when I first started to uh, get into the open tunings, I was doing some fingerstyle stuff, but. I find myself developing overall into a, a kind of, I guess what's called a hybrid style of picking where I'm actually using a flat pick almost all the time, but I'm involving uh, one or two fingers in that style uh, as well. So uh, it's kind of a hybrid thing for me at this point. I, I do like having a flat pick in my hand at this point. Now the fingers with finger picks are just flesh. Just flesh now, mm-hmm. yeah, because I find that sometimes I want to brush uh, the backside of my fingers, mm-hmm. and and that's really not something you can do effectively with you know any kind of finger picks uh, you're wearing. I find so, yeah, I'm just kind of going at and trying to keep my nails from breaking off. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up a question: Do you use fake nails on your right hand? Or do you just you lacquer them, or do you just trim them to a certain length and hope that they won't break? Yeah, uh, it's really more of the the latter there at this point. Uh, I, I haven't never really done the fake nails thing, but I've thought about it uh, and looked into it and watched some James Taylor videos that he has up about actually how he puts his fake nails and he does it personally and trims them and so forth and and. I've always kind of thought, well, that would really solve the problem. But um, to me, it, I'm always kind of fearful that, you know, there's some kind of fungus that's going to develop underneath there, which actually is a, uh, something you got to be aware, wary of. Um, in fact, James Taylor in his video puts a disclaimer. He says, hey, you know, uh, I'm not telling you to do this because, you know, there could be problems. But I haven't had any in 40 years, just so you know. So uh, I, I started to, you know, put some fingernail polish on those couple fingers that I that I use, and some nail strength there and stuff like that. And I find out if I let them grow long enough, I still had a problem with them breaking and chipping. So now I just try to keep them trimmed to the point where it's less likely I'm gonna they're gonna break, but I'm still getting a little bit of that nail sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's kind of where I'm at with it at this point. Now, the from a guitar standpoint, you are, I've seen you play three guitars over the last 10 or 12 or 15 years. One is the Rain Song. Yeah. Um, one is a Guild, and I can't remember the name of the other one. It was one of the lines, I'm not sure if you repped it or not. Um, it's the one with all the abalone and the, the pearl on it. Yeah, I, I played a Timberline. That's what I, it was. You saw, mm-hmm. you saw me uh, play that. Uh, I, I don't really play that one anymore. Uh, I still have it. Uh, 
And uh, it's a pretty amazing guitar on the low end. It's it shouldn't be. It's a short scale guitar. Uh, has a cutaway in it, and it just has uh, just a stock basic Fisherman under saddle pickup in it. So you'd look at that guitar and say, if you put that short scale guitar in an open tuning uh, and with that simple pickup, it, it shouldn't lack a lot in the bottom end. It's the best guitar I've ever plugged in, in for bottom end. It's just amazing. That's the guitar uh, in the photo I took from Brewer's Alley that's looking kind of up at you. Yeah. It's on your website. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the guitar with that pickup uh, leaves a little bit to be desired, especially in the mid-range, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, where a lot of the guitar sound comes from. Uh, so, uh, but that's still a good guitar uh, for live gigs. Uh, I guess my, well, my, my, the most expensive guitar I own is an Olsen. Uh, I got Jim Olsen to build me a guitar years ago. And uh, I'm using that one a lot in uh, in the videos now, in the, in the open tuning. Uh, and that's that's a great guitar in the upper mids and the mids and in the high end is good as well. But it's fantastic in the mid range. And uh, the low end is different. It's a cedar top, so it has almost a compressed sound. The attack on the low end note is not as quick as uh, Sitka or some other kinds of spruce, but uh, it sustains forever. So you have to play that guitar differently. Uh, uh, I tend to play it to pick the bottom notes more uh, towards the, uh, the bridge and saddle uh, to kind of control the attack and sustain on that. But, uh, that guitar sounds pretty wonderful when you can control it properly. Um, and uh, I for so I use that for open tunings. And when I play in standard tuning, I have a uh, guitar that was handmade by a luthier up in at the time he was in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, named Gene Matisco. And he got some notoriety later because he had built some guitars for Eddie Van Halen, some acoustic guitars. And uh, I think Jackson Brown also got one, too. Uh, and um, he built, uh, he, he was the kind of guy that was extremely meticulous in his work. I mean, to the point where uh, it kind of hurt his, his business because he, he could never produce a guitar in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. And he'd promise, he'd promise you'd be done in a year and it would take you three years to get the guitar, that kind of thing. Uh, but the upside was uh, he was a, a, an amazing artist. And uh, so I had this guitar. I actually bought it used. I found one out in Pittsburgh and um, got it for a fairly decent price and has a nice fat neck on it. So some of my guitars have fairly thin necks. Some of the fat necks like this one does. But uh, And I hadn't played it a lot, uh, especially out. Uh, you know, in for gigs. But uh, as I started to do these uh, videos here during the pandemic, uh, I realized how clean the voice was in this guitar for standard tuning. And it just came across really well recorded, very balanced, but with a, a nice fat bottom end at the same time. 
And uh, so I've been using that one a lot and got a lot of compliments on the sound of that guitar um, from videos I put up online. Uh, so that's kind of been my main axis here in the pandemic. I've been at Matisco and and the Olsen. For gigs, uh, I, I got into uh, I, I sold Tacoma guitars for a while mm-hmm. uh, as a rep. And I happened to come across a little uh, kind of parlor-sized Brazilian rosewood Tacoma uh, that was interesting because they this particular parlor size, which is uh, they made as deep as a dreadnought, so it was much deeper than a normal parlor. Got a great bottom end and is actually a very loud guitar for a parlor. And I played that one. That became my main axe for standard tuning as I played gigs. And then I had the Rain Song, which uh, actually David Wilcox turned me on to. Actually, it's his, it's his, it turns out it's his signature model that I ended up buying, um, which is a jumbo. And it has two pickup systems, and it has a magnetic pickup with a, a microphone and also has an under saddle, which I, I end up not using. I used mainly just the uh, – actually exclusively almost the magnetic pickup in that, surprisingly, and turned the mic way down. Uh, but that guitar sounds good in open tuning, uh, in the open C tuning, which I use mostly. And so I always brought that guitar to gigs as, uh, to use for the open tuning songs and, and also just to have a spare guitar that was really, uh, a joy to take out on my outside gigs, which were a lot, uh, in the summertime at wineries and so forth, because being carbon fiber, uh, you didn't have the you know the tuning issues that you have with heat and humidity on an acoustic wooden guitar. Uh, so those were kind of my two main axes for gigging uh, over the past several years. But you know I've got another fifteen guitars here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that's like. I I do. Unfortunately, my whole living room, living room wall on one one wall in the living room is nothing but guitar cases with three or four sitting on the floor, and then there's off to my left in my studio, there's another four plus a stack of ukuleles, which I don't play very often. So I do understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and there, there really is something uh, to be said. You know, I'll, I'll have a guitar that I haven't touched for a long, long time. And, you know, open the case, put some new strings on it, and just realize, I, I said, wow, I forgot how good this guitar was. Mm-hmm. And and then it, it, it's speaking to me in a different way, which... Uh, reminds me of a favorite cover tune I was meant to learn or or maybe it inspires uh, something to do uh, for uh, a, a new writing project so uh, it's great to have all these different voices around because they 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 do inspire different things now do you, do you have a guitar which is your go-to I feel like playing guitar bing that's the one you pick up most of the time well, you know, surprisingly, the one that falls into that category for me is not really a great sounding guitar. It, it's a it's a, a, a Guild Triple O uh, style body that I bought and uh, actually I traded a Japanese guitar for this American guitar when I was the Guild rep to a dealer because it had some cracks in it and, and had a little bit of a bridge lift. But being a shorter scale, it's very comfortable to play, and the action's very good on it. And it's not a particularly loud guitar, or it, and it uh, doesn't have a 
to me a great voice just to listen to as a guitar, but it's a good guitar uh, that's comfortable to play that, um, you know, I can sing to and really hear more of what I'm singing rather than my ear drawn to the guitar. It's not that loud. So I find myself picking that guitar up a lot uh, just to kind of write with or flush out a cover tune or whatever. Uh, which is interesting. You'd think you'd want to hear the guitar that sounds the best all the time. But um, I, I find I, I, I gravitate when I just want to pick a guitar up to the one that's most comfortable to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that, and as you know, as you get older, you know, your hands aren't as strong, at least mine aren't, and uh, aren't as agile maybe. And um, you, know, you have little aches and pains there. Uh, so the the comfort in playing, and I find that the sh- you know a shorter scale like a triple O would have, is uh, a little more comfortable. Uh, now in open tuning, the scale length is really not an issue because I'm tuning down uh, to open C, so most of the strings are are being lowered, so you have less tension that way. Now, do you find when you tune down because that's that's fairly low? I tune most of my guitars to the. Um, D scale, basically, not open D, but uh, I'm a full step down just because it hits my vocal range a little bit better. And I have uh-huh. a baritone guitar that I tune basically up to C sharp. Uh-huh. On, on a lot of your shorter scale guitars, to tune them down to C, they must get a little floppy on the strings. Yeah, I I, uh, I tend not to tune down the uh, shorter scale guitars, but... Uh, Interesting enough, that guitar we were talking about earlier, the Timberline, mm-hmm. uh, that I used to bring out to Brewer's Alley. Um, uh, that one, surprisingly, I could tune down to open C, and it wasn't floppy. And the action wasn't bad just in standard tuning, which makes no sense at all. Uh, so uh, I never had any real uh, flop. You know, the string was naturally a little floppier, uh, but I didn't have... Uh, maybe I just, you know, slightly played it differently. So it didn't, uh, you know, flop out on me in the low end, but I didn't really have any problem. And I'm using, um, you know, uh, light gauge strings. Oh, you do. I was I never, just going to ask you that. Yeah. I never went up to mediums. Uh, yeah, I, I would have, you know, if I had the problem with the floppiness, but for somehow in, in the way I was playing it, uh, I don't know if I just subconsciously adjusted to it to avoid that, maybe. Uh, but surprisingly, in that guitar, which you know, uh, just looking at it analytically, you would say, "Well, that one's out, short scale, mm-hmm. can't tune it down. It's going to be too floppy, and the low end stinks in it anyway." Totally the opposite. <laughs> so, <laughs> what what I found out is, uh, and and that that wasn't an, a very expensive guitar either. I mean, it was you know a thousand dollar guitar, uh, but um, you know on the street maybe. Uh, but I found that guitar just had the best low end and just really worked in open tuning, which you know analytically you would never judge it that way. So I found out I, I really have to have an open mind. Mm-hmm. I can't really concentrate how much that guitar is costing or you know selling for. And uh, or what it's going to sound like when I tune it down. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've learned I've come from being a complete guitar snob. Uh, just all the 
upper end ten thousand uh, dollar guitars that were made by small luthiers and to at this point in my life i realize you can't judge a book by its cover you gotta mm-hmm. really play it and you, you could be very surprised sometimes on some instruments that aren't that expensive about how pleased you are with the way they sound in particular tuning particularly um and the way they play and just the whole feedback you get from it. Now, going back to guitar strings, do you have a preferred brand? Yeah, I, I use John Pierce. Oh, uh, you do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I really got turned on them, turned on to them by Jim Olson, because uh, that's what he was putting on his instruments as he built them. That's the only strings he had there, and, you know, that they were going to come with John Pierce. And so I got the guitar and the strings seemed to work really good on it and then i just started to buy them to replace them on the olsen and then i just started to buy and put them on everything and just really ended up liking them and uh you know they don't have uh i, I guess they have an average uh life for me because mm-hmm. I, I i like the strings to be crisp when they start to dull out and blow in you know i i want to replace them i'm not into the whole dead string blues thing mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, I've just really found that, uh, I've gotten used to them and, you know, like the way they sound and they're always consistent and, uh, you know, being an insider in the music business, I knew that John Pierce didn't actually make those strings. Somebody else was making for, for sure. them and he switched, switched around who did it, but they've always been really consistent. They always sound like the John Pierce string that I first got on my Olsen when it arrived. Well, speaking of being in the industry, explain to folks who are listening what you mean by that. Yeah, I I spent uh, my career as in a day job as a uh, traveling sales rep for uh, manufacturers and distributors in the uh, in the music business for instruments and for sound equipment. So my job was to uh, travel around to primarily music stores and and sometimes for professional audio uh, houses and installation houses for audio and uh, sell them the product that uh, I was representing. Uh, And I worked for really some of the, the big, uh, you know, major companies. Uh, I worked for Yamaha uh, in uh, both their instruments and sound equipment and did that for many years and then i i left them and uh, worked for pv electronics which was primarily uh, sound equipment but of course instrument amplifiers and they actually sold instruments as well and um then um i uh worked for fender and uh worked for sold that's where i ended up selling guild guitars and uh some of those kind of things because they actually owned a lot of different other companies that I was representing. Mm -hmm. And I worked for Washburn, which was U.S. Music, and they had a lot of different other things. I sold Marshall amplifiers and all kinds of things over the years. So that was my my gig. Now, how did you get into that? Well, I, uh, out of college, uh, I was, I was doing some playing as a folk singer. But um, realized that I wanted something a little steadier to back that up. 
And uh, I thought, well, the next best thing would be to be involved in, you know, the musical instrument business, which is, you know, I was always a gear nut. And uh, so I, I wrote a letter to uh, Fender Martin and Gibson and said, just fresh out of college, want to work for you. And uh, Fender actually replied back and uh, flew out for some interviews. Didn't get in at that time, but they kind of said, you know, you're going to be the next one. And we had to hire this other guy because he had some retail uh, music store experience. And you should probably go out and get some of that uh, in the meantime, which I did. So I moved to New Jersey, worked for a store called Rondo Music in Union, New Jersey. And uh, two years later, uh, the Fender thing hadn't come around, but I got an opportunity to uh, become a sales rep for the custom amplifier company. Mm -hmm. And uh, they moved me to California from New Jersey. Oh, So I was the California rep for uh, custom amplifiers, which were really in the waning moments of their lifespan. And it was a tough sell. So, but it was a good experience as a salesperson. And uh, they were bought by uh, Baldwin Piano shortly after I got out to California, which also owned Gretsch. And so I became uh, the Gretsch guitar and drum rep for Southern California and Arizona, that, that territory. And that was a really great experience. Although the Gretsch guitars were sad in a sad shape at that point. And, uh, uh, but the drums were still very well renowned, especially among the studio players. So me being a guitar I lost you there. there but you I became very, I became very schooled and appreciative of drummers uh, through that process, and uh, that that was a really great experience for me. And uh, then I went to work for Yamaha, and they moved me back all the way back east, and ended up back where I started out. So, and then went through other other companies that we've mentioned, and. Uh, pretty much had the mid-Atlantic states as my territory uh, through most of my career there. Uh, so that was kind of my journey. Now, uh, you're now full-time, well, full-time caregiver for your dad, which is absolutely wonderful. The And then more or less full-time singer-songwriter. Do you miss the repping part of your life? Uh, I have to say I, I miss some of the people. And... Uh, you know, it was always fun to walk into a music store because I was there for business, but obviously I was there also as a someone who loved instruments and it was always great to be in a music store. Mm -hmm. So I miss some of that. The actual uh, business part uh, and, you know, working for, you know, big companies and corporate entities, I really don't miss at all. <laughs> so, uh, but it... Uh, it was it was a really good experience uh, in my working life uh, in my in the day job, and um, you know I, f I feel very fortunate to have spent you know my time in the music business, uh, uh, so it was really a pretty good ride in that respect. But at this point, you know, it's become very tough for uh, the independent music retailers, which was my life's blood as a rep. Uh, 
you know, they've been assaulted for years and uh, with the internet sales and uh, now with the pandemic, it, it's just a very, very tough uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the numbers uh, from the music industry in terms of sales started to concentrate in a handful of entities. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, from the guitar centers and Sweetwater Sounds and Amazon and eBay, uh, all of a sudden, uh, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, it was a, definitely a process, but, you know, you take, you know, those five, four, five, six entities, and they're probably 70% of the sales of musical equipment in the United States. So, which doesn't leave much uh, for everybody else, right? Um, so that became a very tough thing. The the job as a traveling sales rep is not totally obsolete yet, but it's pretty close. Yeah, in in the music business. So uh, I had a good run, and I was there when the getting was good. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and it was sad to see uh, uh, the decline of it from the independent. Uh, music store perspective so but that that's kind of what happened and there's still certainly a uh, a place for the independent music retailer and some have done it very very well and have weathered the storm and actually thrived and they concentrated on things like music lessons and service and uh, provide an adequate selection in lines that uh, were an opportunity for them and, uh, you know, there's some very, some very good stores left. Uh, but the guys who were not a sharp businessman and didn't realize where their bread was being buttered, uh, most of them are gone now. Yeah. Now, do yeah. you miss, like, the NAM show? Like a toothache. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the NAM show is, is an exciting thing. And I, I'd been to so many of them over the years. Uh, uh, and I'd been there uh, a few times. Uh, I actually had a, some spells where I was uh, in between jobs and went there not actually working a booth. And that was an, a, a much more interesting experience, frankly. But, uh, you know, the from the working side of it, when you're there uh, working for a manufacturer who spent just an enormous amount of money to set up a booth there and fly their people in and, you know, uh, do the whole bit. There's a tremendous amount of pressure to, uh, produce some sales numbers during those three, four days. Mm-hmm. And, um, that part I didn't enjoy yeah. <laughs> because, uh, the, the dealers went there with the intention of not buying. <laughs> <laughs> They were going to kick the tires and have a meeting when they got home and maybe pick the cream of the crop or what they were going to order. But the dealers didn't like to do business, uh, by and large. That's Um, interesting because I came out of the surf and beach industry and our big buying show, which was in January. Well, there were two shows. There was one in, in September, late September in Atlantic City with kind of an offshoot. But the main show was in, um, Florida in late January. And from a surf shop owner's standpoint, I was a surf shop owner and I was also a rep in the, in the, the industry. 
is you went there to purchase because you could see so many lines over one three-day period, you could pretty much order 95% of your next season's stuff. Otherwise, you were waiting for the reps to show up. And, you know, they usually came in just more from a maintenance standpoint. Did you get everything you need? Can I help you with, you know, if you have trouble with shipping, that kind of stuff. So it's interesting yeah. that you say that the retailers went in not wanting to purchase. It was more just a search and destroy mission sort of seat. Yeah, that's kind of the way it, it came up. You know, when I first was in the industry, um, they, you know, they had the NAM show deals for the dealers where there was a real incentive, first of all, to go because those deals were only going to be available those three or four days that were at the show. And then they were gone. And then over the years, it was like, well, we're going to extend it for the next week. And mm -hmm. then we're going to extend it yeah, to the end of the month. And, and then it started to be like, Hey, we got the NAM shows deals 30 days ahead of the NAM show. And then we got them 30 days after the NAM show. <laughs> so then it was really no incentive to do it at the show. Right. Uh, if it was something really hot, you did it long before you got to the show. And if it was something that, you know, you, maybe your arm had to be twisted to thought, think about doing, you, if you did it at all, you did it probably after the show when the rep was at your, at your store with the sample and giving you the full pitch and whatever he could do to get you to do it. So it, it kind of became, uh, you know that that's the way it went, but from the from the uh, manufacturer who was spending you know several hundred thousand dollars to have that booth set up and have everybody there, they could never really accept that transition. You know, this is like show me a big number here during these uh, couple days, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll feel a little bit better about having spent all this money. <laughs> Now, of, of all the lines that you carried over the years, what was your favorite line to rep? Wow, that's that that's a tough question. I would say the uh, the one that was always uh, the highest quality uh, was Yamaha. Mm -hmm. uh, they were a really great and still are a great manufacturer of, of quality uh, at all the price points they choose to participate in. And um, I got involved in, uh, when I first went to Yamaha, uh, I got involved in something that was totally foreign to me. Uh, I, I got involved in the digital uh, synthesizer business. Wow. Uh, that's, that's the division I was hired to go into. And I wasn't a keyboard player and uh, didn't know anything about synthesizers. And it was a great opportunity just to learn something new that, that was interesting, it was still music. And uh, so that was uh, – and, and Yamaha happened to be on top of the world uh, as what the musical instrument digital interface MIDI uh, hit. At the same time, they came out with the legendary uh, DX7 FM synthesizer, which effectively replaced the Rhodes piano um, in in the industry. Uh, and so we were on top of the world. Uh, we had about 80% market share wow. at one point. And 
So that that was a fun experience. Although I didn't make as much money then. I actually made money when it was a lot harder to sell stuff. <laughs> so that's how uh, that goes sometimes. But uh, yeah, I'd say Yamaha was uh, probably the best company that I worked for. PV was very interesting. It was kind of the American success story, uh, Hartley PV. Uh, and, you know, I got dealt with Hartley directly, and he was quite a character, still is. And um, so that was a very interesting uh, time as well. And uh, Fender was uh, was very interesting. You know, you'd think Fender would be the, uh, the ultimate job, and I always thought it would be too. Uh, but, uh, cause they, you know, who has a better, uh, market share than Fender and electric guitars? It's right. like the, the Kings of the world. And also they sell a ton of acoustic guitars. And, uh, so, but Fender wasn't my favorite place to work in the end. Hmm. Um, so sometimes that's how it goes. Yeah. Now going back to performers, Excluding yourself, and this is going to be a tough question probably. It would be very difficult for me, but name the top three. They can be singer-songwriters, but musicians, performers, your top three. If you had to pick only three people to be able to listen to for your entire life, who would they be? David Wilcox, uh, Dan Fogelberg, and Bob Dylan. Okay. And Bob Dylan could be intersected with Neil Young. Neil Young has been a favorite of mine and an influence as well. But uh, as far as songwriting goes, my, my biggest influence has is, is probably been David Wilcox. Mm -hmm. uh, I think his, uh, you know, first of all, he kind of turned me on to this open C tuning that I use a lot. And, uh, and his, his approach to lyrics and songwriting in general, uh, is something that I aspire to. He, he uh, to me is, is, uh, the top of the heap. Well, one of the interesting and, things is I know when you go to a gig, you take two or three guitars with you, don't you? Uh, yeah, usually two. Yeah. Yeah. And one probably standard tuning. One is your open tuning. Yeah, that's and, right. But David Wilcox, if I'm not mistaken, I've never seen him live, but I've seen a lot of YouTubes and things like that. He does everything with one guitar for the most part, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, it's just that, you know, as as he travels uh, all over the place, uh, it, it's just too much of a hassle to bring a second guitar. Sure. And uh, um, so he's developed into... Uh, a very fast tuner on stage because he uses a lot of different tunings, mm -hmm. uh, three, four anyway, uh, that uh, in most of his songs. So he's constantly, uh, tweaking the guitar and he never has a set list. So he's kind of reading the audience and getting the feeling and said, Oh, I think this is the one for now. And it could be in a tuning that he has to spend, you know, I would have to spend three minutes retuning and he does it in 30 seconds. Well, I think I read somewhere, someone was interviewing him and asked how you retune a guitar so quickly. And I think his comment was, I've memorized how many turns each yeah. tuning peg gets. He says, that way I'm really close. 
so when I'm speaking to the audience, and one of the things he's really good at, as you well know, is segueing yeah. from song to song yeah. in his stories. Yeah. And he's tuning the whole time, but he said, if I memorize, it's three turns on this string, you know, two on this one, this one I have to go the other way to, then I'm very, very close, because I guess he's very good at how far he turns it. He says, then it's just yeah. the final tweaking. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I, it's interesting. I, uh, I was at, a, at an AM show and uh, I saw a new product had come out and I forget the name of the company, but the, the idea is they had a new uh, set of tuning machines that were geared differently for each string. And the effect was that all the uh, turning would be consistent for each string. So it didn't matter the diameter of the string anymore uh, that you were tuning. You could turn it the same amount of turns and it would, you know, give you the, that amount of turn would give you a half step or a whole step or whatever it happened to be. So I, I immediately called Dave and I go, man, you got to check this out. I think this would be perfect for you. And he said, you know what? He says, I've memorized just a standard. He uses Goto 510s uh -huh. guitar. It's my favorite. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah, and that's what I have on my Olson too. And, uh, and he said, you know, I just have memorized where it's at. So I don't want to, I'm not interested in this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, he has it down. Now, isn't the company, isn't that the company that makes Tusk saddles? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, it might be. Uh, it might be. And I saw yeah. the advertisement one time somewhere online or in one of the guitar magazines. I haven't seen it recently, so I maybe it wasn't as successful as they expected it to be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think they're still around, but uh, it hasn't really caught on. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I guess what it would take would be to for a manufacturer to adopt it. And, mm -hmm. But then it's always like, well, you know, everybody's used to dealing with a different turn because of the diameter of the string on right. each post. And it's, you, you're trying to change a whole way of life and that's always tough. <laughs> but I thought it was very interesting. It is very interesting. Now, obviously with the whole pandemic thing, things, the only real gigs, and I've actually had a fair amount of gigs this summer, but they're all outdoors and people yeah. are spaced out and the, nearest person to you is generally at least 30 feet maybe more the so it's it's a very comfortable situation but what do you see as things start to open back up what's the future hold performance wise for michael arthur well uh i i'm just not going to do any gigs uh you know in my situation and right. uh you know i have a 98 year old father who's obviously very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my wife and I are at, at an age and, uh, you know, a few medical things with her that, uh, you know, put us at a higher risk. And uh, so I, I'm just not going to go out there until uh, there's either better therapeutics or, um, or a vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of settling into this online thing for a while. Uh, and uh, interesting, a lot of the, uh, you know, musical events, uh, you know, foresaw this coming and were canceled very early. Like, the, you know, we're talking about the NAMM show that mm -hmm. that's canceled. That's canceled already for January. 
Um, and um, so we'll see. Uh, I'm just in a position, you know, if I were younger and didn't have any responsibilities, I, I, I think it, 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 you'd get back out there sooner. Sure. Uh, but in my situation, uh, especially as we get off the uh, ability to play outside in open air uh, as we get into the fall and winter, um, unless something changes dramatically on, on the front of how to treat this thing, um, I just don't see me getting back out there real soon. Mm-hmm. Now, if people want to, if they really enjoy the, um, the song we played earlier and the uh, Blind Man's County Fair Blues and the one we're going to finish up with, which you say the title kind of morphs over time. I'm just going to call it Deep Divide. But yeah. the if someone says, gosh, I really love the sound of that, how can they, I get a hold of your music? How can someone do that? Well, if they just want to listen to it, I'm going to have it up on my website. And uh, as I re-record these songs with the uh, better equipment that I have now uh, during this time, uh, I'm going to put them up on you know the streaming channels uh, and so forth and i'll actually hopefully have some cds um uh, that i could send hard hard copy to that'll be up on my website so if you just want to keep track of it on michaelarthur.com or uh my facebook page um you know there'll be information about how to get hold of it or actually listen to it so tell me how you introduce the title of what I call Deep Divide. What, what, do you, what did this start out as, and how do you title it now? Because we're going to be hearing that shortly, or at least the people listening to the show. Yeah, well, I, uh, I wrote that song uh, quite a while ago now, probably seven, eight years or so ago. And uh, it's probably more apropos now than ever. Uh, but I introduced the song as, uh, it's my prayer for America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're so divided, uh, and, uh, I'm trying just to, uh, via that song, uh, bring forth the positive message is that we have to start listening to each other again and, you know, find some common ground, uh, because when you uh, stop listening to someone and demonize them or cancel them, uh, the next option is war. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want war, don't don't go down that path. That's that's my message. Well, this has been terrific catching up with you. As I I tell people all the time when your name comes up, I say, "Gosh, I wish I could see and hear him more often." Because I have always enjoyed watching you, listening to you, but also having the limited conversations we've been able to have because your wealth of information from a songwriting standpoint, but also from a equipment standpoint and live performance standpoint. So I do miss that, and I hope we get a chance sometime in the future to be able to be one-on-one. It, it's, uh, but this has been fun yeah. for me. I hope it's been good for you. But really enjoy talking to you today, Todd, and hopefully we'll get to see each other in person, play some music, hopefully sometime soon. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go for now. And folks, uh, please check out michaelarthur.com or go to his Facebook page and learn more bit more about him and listen to some more of the song because we only have two that we listen to today. But Michael, I'm going to let you go so you can get back and check on Dad. And that's a wonderful thing you're doing, by the way. That is just really terrific. I, I got to say, good on you, mate. 
<laughs> thanks. All right. Well, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thanks, Todd. All right, Michael. Bye. Well, that was Michael Arthur, and uh, what a fun conversation I've had with him. We're going to end the show with his song, which changes the title over time. He said sometimes it's Across the Deep Divide or This Deep Divide or just The Deep Divide. I'm just going to call it Deep Divide, but we will listen to it now. Whoops, wrong button. I see black and you see white You live for the day and I, I long for the night You are shouting red and I am feeling Both think that we're right And on the one and only path it's true There is a common ground We must discover Comes before tolerance or compromise It is here where we are meant to Find one another bottom of this deep divide what seems so obvious to you escapes me completely All the pieces of our lives don't fit together so neatly A free living for ourselves But you find my opinions upsetting You are freezing cold and I am sweating There is a common ground we must discover Comes before tolerance or compromise It is here where we are meant to find one another The bottom of this deep divide No bridge could span the distance between these opposing rims. But if we scale down to the bottom, the walls grow closer and thin. 
And the news of the day sees this world torn apart. Strange when you know that hate has no place inside a human heart. There is a common ground we must discover. Comes before tolerance or compromise. It is here where we are meant to love one another. Bottom of this deep divide. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studios in Frederick, Maryland, or sometimes on location. It is taped live, thus you will hear every once in a while a little mistake like you heard earlier before the introduction or at the introduction of this past last song where I hit the wrong button and you heard this. <laughs> Wasn't supposed to be there. But anyway, all music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link wispymopmusic.podbean.com or you can find the show on iTunes or Apple podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.